Well, my sinuses are acting up. It had nothing to do with why I was crying. What a beautiful, beautiful just song to hear everyone sing this morning. Oh, I think that's going to be the first song we all sing when Jesus returns and we stand before him. What else do you say besides holy? You don't say anything else but holy. My gosh. I had a wonderful time at a funeral yesterday. Putting the fun back in funeral, that's what Christians do. So I, I went to a funeral, went to the funeral of Ruth Agatha Lyons. For all of those who are not Jamaican, you pronounce Agatha Agatha. And if you don't believe me, just ask Miss Riley, she'll tell you. Went to the funeral of Ruth Agatha Lyons. I got there, when I got there, Miss, uh, Mrs. McLaughlin says to me, you know, the pastor's work is never finished. And I thought, yep, this is, this is part of it. I really don't know who Ruth Agatha Lyons is. I've never, I don't remember ever meeting Miss Lyons. But I know that she is the mother of one of our beloved church members, Genevieve Nibs, who's been here for many, many years. The mother of Tosha Nibs. Remember Tosha, she played the violin. She played a lovely violin yesterday. And I didn't really know, I've never met Ruth Agatha Lyons but about 30 minutes into it, I just was so profoundly overwhelmed with the pleasure of getting to be a pastor. What a privilege it is to be a pastor. To sit there and to be ministered to and served by brothers and sisters who I would have probably never met had I not been a pastor. To be in a church full of Jamaicans and be the only white guy there and to feel so comfortable because they're my brothers and sisters. What an... You were there, Mr. Hearn. Let me not leave you out. <laughs> and it was just so wonderful. I just sat there and I was just... It was such an edification to be there. And people of God everywhere. I had a Jamaican on this side. A Jamaican sitting in front of me. And Jamaican... Everybody was Jamaican. So everybody around me was Jamaican. But I had, I had Miss... Uh, Miss McLaughlin here, and I had Gratana Khalil here, and then we had Miss Gordon in front of me, and this one fellow who kept, he was kind of the master of ceremonies, he was hilarious. I didn't understand a word he said, but he got up at one point, and, and Pat leans over to Miss Gordon, and she says, you understand what he's saying? <laughs> and Miss Gordon looked around and said, no. <laughs> and I reached up and touched them both, and I said, if you two are lost, where do you think I am? I, I didn't understand a word. But I remember getting, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to pull out my phone yesterday and start writing, but I thought somebody's going to say I'm a young whippersnapper texting. I wanted to write. I was so inspired by being there. If, if all of the things that were said about Ruth Agatha Lyons are true, I missed out. She was apparently one of the most amazing Christians who've ever walked this earth. And one of the elders of the church kept saying she, she didn't do it on a platform. She didn't do it with a microphone. She just did it. And story after story about this woman's life, I'm thinking this woman is a champion of, of the faith. And I am so sad that I never knew her. It got me thinking, how many people in our church are there today that are like that? That 
I could know, I could, I could learn of their great work for the Lord who so silently don't, don't say anything about it, but just do. I had to find, some of you saw me leave, and I, I went back because I was looking for somebody who had the program from yesterday. I forgot mine. I kept it. I still have it. I have to read an excerpt from it. This is so wonderful. What a servant for Christ. It says about Ruth, she never left home without a gospel tract ready to hand out. She would wake up early for days to go from Rockfort to Almondtown. That right? That's the Jamaican section back there. To pray with and guide and support one of her converts in daily devotions. So she was making disciples. She would leave. She would go and pray with someone who she led to Jesus. And she would, she would pray with them and, and devote with them. Making a disciple. I immediately picked up on that. Some years after being at Carmel, she was given the opportunity of living in the church cottage as caretaker and to oversee the cleaning and preparation for services and everything else. Ruth and Pam guarded that property with their very beings. And here's my favorite part. All the Rastafarians on the Warika Hills respected her because she was not afraid to approach them and tell them of the Lord's love for sinners. Wow. And we can't even say it to people who we know and love. Wow. She loved mission work and will not be going home empty-handed to meet her Jesus, for she has led souls to him in Jamaica. Thank you, God, for people like her. What a wonderful day it was. If you knew her, you are apparently very privileged to have known her. Well, let's try and not cry the rest of the day. <laughs> Bunch of big crybabies. It's only because you're such an awesome church. If you weren't so awesome, we wouldn't be up here crying all the time. But it's because you're so awesome. Last week we talked about a short-term vision. We've got a year. We want to focus on three things. If we can, if we can focus on reaffirming the phase... The, the truths of the faith, learning and growing, we've succeeded in one of our tasks. Number two, we want to stir up love and good works. How many of you looked at the website and saw the things you could do to be serving this week? Raise your hand. Come on. Be Pentecostals for a second. Get those hands up. So online, there are, there are 25 things. I just thought, what, what do I want for our church to be serving? What can I ask you to do right away? And 25 things are right there. We want to think of ways, though, to stir up love and good works. And then finally, we want to not forsake being together and meeting together, as some people do. In fact, the data is that less than 18% of this generation goes to church once a month. We don't want to be like that. We want to be here on Sunday and Wednesday. Those are the two days that we meet, Sunday and Wednesday. And so this is our short-term, our short-term vision. But I want to cast the long-term vision for our church this morning. And I want to just simply state it as it is stated. Our vision for the long-term of this church is to be this. It is to be a pure church. We want to be a pure church. The Bible tells us that Jesus wants to present in the mystery, in Ephesians 5, the mystery of the marriage, 
that just like we are as husbands to make sure that our wives are presented to the Lord pure, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, it is the responsibility of all of us to make sure that the church is pure and without spot and without wrinkle and without blemish. The definition of church purity is the church's degree of freedom from freedom from doctrinal error and immoral conduct and its degree of conformity to the biblical measure of what the church is to be. That's what it means to be a pure church. Free from wrong doctrine, free from sin, and to be conforming to the biblical idea of what the church is to be. So our vision here is to be a pure church. How do we do that? By strengthening the faith of every believer. By encouraging Christian unity. By building Christian homes. And by reaching South Florida for Christ. So the question then becomes, how do we achieve these goals? Or are these, for today, are these goals noteworthy and biblical goals. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for the church. What a gift the church is. It is the church that is there with us when we are sad. It is the church that celebrates when we are happy. It is the church that tells us when we sin. It is the church that seeks to reconcile us back to you, Lord Jesus. You've given the church to be a gift to its people to direct the world into salvation, to direct the believer into sanctification. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your church. Give us vision. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at the four ways we're going to live out this vision. Number one, strengthening the faith of every believer. We want to strengthen the faith of every believer. Here's what we mean by this. At Northwest Baptist Church, we believe that Christian faith grows. It is not something we did when we were young people and left behind. We believe here that Christian faith grows. It produces fruit. It is not like it was. That the real test of salvation is not did you say the right prayer at a vacation Bible school. Though that is very important. But it is did, did you view that as the seed being planted to your tree that will one day yield the fruit in keeping with salvation. We believe that the Christian faith grows. Our vision is that every believer here will grow stronger and stronger in their faith through acquiring a greater knowledge of God and a greater love for Him and by bearing fruit of Christian sanctification. Let's look at what the Bible says. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter 1, 5 through 8. 1 Peter Actually, it's 2 Peter. I made a mistake in my notes. It's 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. 2 Peter. Peter says, for this reason, the reason that he's speaking of is that the church has been given the ability to be a holy church. 
And for this reason, because we have the ability to grow and strengthen our faith, for that reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, in fact, the word in the Greek there means superabounding. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible knows nothing, nothing of a Christian that produces no fruit. What did Jesus say to the tree that produced no fruit? He cursed it. Those trees that don't produce fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. Christian faith is a faith that grows and it produces fruit. And it is for our benefit that the church produces fruit and is pure. The verb there is mean, literally means in a, the idea of increasing. All of these things we just talked about as increasing means to let them overflow. In, in Aristotle and in the Greeks, they would, they would use this oftentimes to talk about when the sea would rise up and flow. And so the idea of this word communicates, have these in an increasing measure. That is the same idea we want to convey when we say, stir up love and good works. Let them rush out of you. Let them be so evident. Because Peter says, if you do, when these qualities are yours and when they are super abounding, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let it not be us, Lord, who are ineffective and unfruitful. Theology calls this the process of sanctification. Sanctification in soteriology, which just means the study of salvation. Sanctification is the process from the moment you give your life or you are converted to the moment you die. And it is a lifelong process. There is always something to do. There is, all, there is always more righteousness to be had. There is always more purity to have in our lives. And so sanctification is the process where man and God work together... The one aspect of salvation where man and God work together, though not equally and by the Spirit's power, work together to produce the purity that God wants to see in his people. He did not save us just to save us, but he saved us to purify us for him, a church without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. And he is doing that today in the life of the church. We want to strengthen that. So this is called sanctification. J.I. Packer says this. He says, for healthy Christians, sanctification is an electric word. That energy. Because God has implanted a passion for holiness deep in every born-again heart. Holiness, which means being near God 
or like God or given to God and pleasing to God is something believers want more than anything else in the world. Do you have a desire for holiness, Christian? I don't mean legalism. I mean holiness. I mean Christ-like. I mean that ability to look at adversity in the face and say, I trust God in the midst of this adversity. I want to be like Jesus. Teach me to love the unlovely. Teach me to forgive the unforgivable God. Make me holy. Make me want, make me want you, God, and nothing beside you, God. Be my portion, God. That is holiness. And we hope and pray that every member of this church will desire holiness. Jerry Bridges, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm quoting both of the men that I'm quoting are Calvinist, and sometimes Calvinists are maligned as being the frozen chosen. But it's interesting that both of the men that I'm quoting are Calvinist. Listen to what Jerry Bridges says about holiness. This then is the objective for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. Holiness. It's what we're doing now. What is the meaning of the life? The meaning of life. Well, for a non-believer, the meaning of life is to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. You say, for every non-believer? I say, every non-believer, the meaning of life is to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. But for every believer... The meaning of life is to be more like Jesus Christ. Jesus intends to make us holy, to purify us from pollution of sin in our lives. He intends to be Lord, says Jerry, Jerry Bridges. He intends to be Lord of our lives and he intends that we exhibit the traits of godly character. David used to say this all the time, Pastor David, he'd say, if you were on trial and you were, being on, you were put on trial for being accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convince you? Man, and I'm sitting there with my friends cracking up in youth group and Dave saying that, and every time he said it, I was thinking, oh boy, right now there's evidence to the contrary. But think about that for a second. Listening to the stories that were told about Agatha, one of the elders got up and he said, have any of you thought about what people will say about you when you die? And I'm thinking the whole time, yes, that's me. I'm thinking about what would people say about me when I die? I pray that what they say about me is only what I've done for Jesus and not the hearts that I've broken, not the sins that I've committed, but how I overcame them in Jesus Christ. I pray that they say that about me. I was so overwhelmed by the testimony that was given about this woman that I'm speaking about her today because everyone said about how much she loved Jesus. Do we desire that? Americans focus on everything but holiness. What does this mean for us, though? We're worried about our lives. What college should we attend? What car should I buy? None, by the way. They all break down. I'm keeping it real with my four hubcap-less wheels, okay? So when you see me roll by in my cube with all the dirt on it and the hubcaps missing, just remember, he's keeping it real. 
I'm trying to be holy. <laughs> I had my tires put on. Well, I won't tell you who did it, but as I drove home, all four of my hubcaps just simultaneously outran my car. <laughs> and I'm not getting out in the hot sun. Those hubcaps are gone. I'm not going back for that. It's 95. You'll get run over. I'm just keeping it real with those hubcaps. We believe that the church of Jesus Christ is made up. Excuse me. Excuse me. We want to make sure that every one of us understands that the point of the church is holiness. So we ask those things, we ask things like what car should we buy or where should we live or, or what will we be when we, we grow up or what career should we take or how will we provide for ourselves or we have all of these anxieties and the anxiety that is in the world now permeates the church and you can tell because our prayers are so often directed towards these things that are here on earth and not directed towards heavenly things. We are so oftentimes preoccupied with the jobs and the cars and the homes and we're not preoccupied with the very thing that Jesus Christ said the church was to be preoccupied with. And what was that? To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things we worry about, they'll be added unto you. And the good news is, if they're not added unto you, you'll be happy anyway. You say, do you have biblical support for that? For I can do all things through Christ Jesus. What did, what did Paul say? I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. He said that in Philippians 4.13 while he was sitting in prison. Don't be preoccupied with these things. We want to strengthen the faith of every believer. But we have to look beyond, beyond these material things and say, God, make me a holier person. Make me fit for when your kingdom comes. Jesus said, don't be anxious. That's what sinners do. That's what non-believers do. But you are not a non-believer. So ask yourself this morning, am I anxious about possessing the riches of the world or the riches of the kingdom. Ask yourself this morning. Do I seek first righteousness. Or am I running after the desires of the world. When you answer that question. We'll be right here. Northwest Baptist Church. To help you strengthen your faith. Through Bible study. Through prayer. Through good works. And through not forsaking our fellowship. Number two, we want to encourage Christian unity. We want to encourage Christian unity in our church. We believe that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of one body with many members. Every member of the one body is essential to the whole, though every member does not have the same function. Now, when you think member, don't think like member of a country club, think member of a body. Like my pinky is a member of a body. And if I cut it off, it's going to hurt. Or if I wake up one morning and my pinky's looking back at me saying, Peace, I don't want to be a part of the body no more. I'm going to be upset about it. Because I need that pinky. How else am I going to hold you know, the cup when I'm drinking my soda? How am I going to hold my coffee in the morning? If I don't have that pinky, it's going to be hard. I need it. 
Now, certainly if the pinky's gone or it leaves the body, yeah, I can still function, but I'm not happy about it, right? Think of members of a body so that whenever you're not here with us, whenever you fall into sin, whenever you don't use your gifts to edify and build us up, you're hurting the one body. Now, maybe you're not a part of the body, in which case you need to become a part of the body. But once you're a part of the body, you don't have an option anymore. You are integral. You are important. You, we must have you as part of the body. So we have to care about our body. So we want to think of this as a whole, a whole, the body as a whole. There is no division in the body, though there are different functions. The hand grabs, the feet walk. But the church must see all members as indispensable to the unity of the body of Christ. Here's what Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says. Paul to the Ephesian churches. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. That means that in the body, some body parts are going to be doing their job better than other body parts. And they're going to be further along than other body parts. And we're going to have to be patient with those members that aren't growing as fast. But those of you who aren't growing as fast, be urgent. See this as urgency that we need you to grow. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word for unity there is the Greek word henoteta, and it literally means oneness. I like that word better, oneness, because it communicates better that we see every last one of us, non-pastors and pastors alike, as indispensable parts of a one body. I don't know about you, but if I see something growing on my body that doesn't need to be there, my whole body's upset about it. What is that? When did that come? Oh, Lord. If one part of my body's not working, the whole body's upset about it. So every part has to be seen as indispensable. Theologians call this church unity. And it simply refers to, as Greedom defines it, the church's degree of freedom from divisions among true Christians. So what we want to pursue in our church is unity. Not everyone in our church is the same. You can just look around and just, just by looking at everyone, see that there are many different people. And those people have been gifted in other ways. Those things that are dividing to us should not be dividing to us, but we should see those as strengths of the one body. Pastor Dave has a passion for missions. A real passion for missions. He loves what I would call global missions or, or international missions. We ought to all support that, even if we don't feel that that's our personal goal. And it's a tendency in the church to say, well, the missions aren't important. 
Jerry has a passion for Christian education. He wants to see that every student who comes through our school aids and assists the local church. He wants to see that he creates in every one of our students from, from nursery all the way to 12th grade that every one of our students is a Christian thinker, a Christian communicator, and is there for world change, wants to see a change for Jesus Christ. I have a passion for theology and for preaching and for teaching. It doesn't mean that Jerry's is more important and mine is less, or mine is more important and Jerry's is less. Some of our people in this church have a passion for cooking. And without them, who would I need to go to the doctor for? But they have a passion for, for feeding people. And they have a passion for encouraging one another. And all of those are important parts of the body. It's not that I'm better and you're worse or you're better and I'm worse. We are all important parts to the body. What are your spiritual gifts? Edification. Administration. Kathleen has a passion for song. Aren't we blessed by that? So all of us. Even those who have been here for years and, and, and maybe aren't involved in our ministry in big ways. You can be in big ways and don't think that just because you don't have a microphone that you don't have an important role to play. But we want to see this as all working together in unity for the one purpose of building up the church. The, the one purpose, your gifts, it's to build up the church, to make the church of Jesus Christ stronger. So all of us are to have this. So what does this mean for us? It means that as a church, we will seek unity and fellowship on all essential matters of the faith and will not quarrel over disputable matters. No need to quarrel over disputable matters. There are essentials of the faith, and the leaders of this church will defend those. That is our job. There is faith in no other name than Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name than Jesus Christ. We will not budge on that. God has an ethic that he has laid out in the New Testament. And we are not budging on that. But as far as the disputable matters are, don't divide the house of God over food and drink, says Paul. Don't you know that those things go in the body and go out the body? That's what Jesus says. It's what comes from the inside. And we want to see hearts that want the unity. Jesus prayed, Lord, make them one as you and I are one. That's my prayer for our church. Let us be one as the Son and the Father and the Spirit are one, though diverse. Number three, we want to build Christian homes we believe that the home is the foundation of society and is the primary place where Christian discipleship happens. So not only is it the foundation of society, and that's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for all of us to stand up today and pledge together that we will be a church that, that edifies the, the Christian view of man and the Christian view of woman and the Christian view of the home, and we will raise our children in godly ways. We want that to happen in our church. But this is not just for the married, you see. 
No matter if you're married or single, Northwest Baptist Church wants to help you build a Christian home by protecting your household from the threat of false teaching and sinful living. In addition to this, we desire that every Christian home be hospitable, charitable, God-exalting, and Christ-centered. In the Bible, specifically in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3, 18 through 21, the Bible lays out what are called household codes. And the purpose of the household code is to show how members within a home and members within a society and members in various relationships, how each one is to relate to the other. That's the purpose of the household code. But in the Bible, the specific purpose is to show how new covenant Christians now relate in every one of these various relationships. Christian. Christian husband, Christian father, Christian friend, Christian employee. You have a new set of rules now that you've become a Christian. Your question, if I can be cliche for a moment, is to ask, what would Jesus do? You know, it had some negatives, but it had some positives, that whole theme some years ago where we, what would Jesus do? Ask that question. It's, it's got some positives to it as well. Man, what is your God-ordained New Testament responsibility? I'm telling you, it's going to fly in the face of what your cultures tell you. Both on the conservative side and the liberal side. You've got two extremes. One extreme is the man is to be the macho man. He's the... He's to be the, the guy who comes in and tells the wife what to do, and he runs the house. Who are you kidding? You don't want that life. You don't want, a, you don't want that life. Trust me. You want your wife to be miserable and hate you? Be that man. But that's not the Bible's man. The Bible says that man's supposed to be the head of the wife. Oh, yeah, it does. Like Christ was the head of the church. And the last time I read my Bible... He washed the feet of his disciples. Last time I read my Bible, he went to a cross. Last time I read my Bible, he became a man. A stinking, rotten, nasty, flu-having, cold-getting man. It's not glorious to be a man. Think you sit on your crown and you come in your, your big chair and you sit there and you tell your wife what to do? That's not, what, that's not what Christian men look like. Christian men, Christian husbands look like Christ. That's what they look like. They wash the feet. That means they serve in miserable ways. They serve. In other words, they're, they're happy while they're doing it, but they're not afraid to get down and serve their families. To give up their food for their families. To give up their wants and desires for their families. Men, that's what we want to create in every one of our homes here. And that every one of us look this way. Fathers. Well, the child better listen to the father. My father used to do it to me and it'd make you better, son. Maybe your father was wrong. 
Maybe your father doesn't align with what the word of God says. But the Bible says fathers don't exasperate your children. That means, fathers, if your son don't want to play football, he's not going to play it. Get over it. And be happy that he's doing ballet, I guess. <laughs> we take Claire to ballet and Kellen and... eating my words here no I just lovingly say son that's not what God has for you trust me <laughs> trust me it really does mean that though by the way it really does mean as parents we say child let me direct you towards what the Lord has for you and you ask yourself is it really you know is there something about this that, that that's wrong if a boy wants to do this or a girl wants to do this that's wrong insofar as what the Bible says the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about this. It doesn't have something to say about the effeminate. In the Bible, we don't want our boys to be effeminate. Women, what does the Bible have to say to you? I'm going to tread carefully, very carefully. My wife's not here, so I don't care. The one woman, <laughs> the one woman who could do anything to me, she's not here today. She's at work. Women, what does God say to you about the type of wife you're to be? And mother you're to be, and woman you're to be. What, what does God have to say? Do we care about that? The society is saying something different right now. Society tells us, and whether you catch it or not, society's telling us that men are dumb and women are smart. Seen the new Geico commercial? Tarzan? Tarzan, come, he dumb. And she mocks him. Yeah, Tarzan, this and that, and she makes fun of him. That's on every TV show that we watch. But that's not biblical. That's not the biblical. That's the American concept of what marriage is to be. Man's dumb. Woman's always right and always nagging her husband. And the husband just doesn't listen to her. You know, that's a lot of our marriages. But that's not a Christian marriage. And that's not what we want to create. We want to see a woman who does exactly what God wants her to do. Which is to follow and to submit to the honor and to the movement of the man who is the husband and the head of the household. Women, don't let him get off the hook. Do not be the leader of the house and let him be a lazy bum. What would you want to do with some man who wasn't going to be the leader of your house? Why would you even want that? Oh, he's so, look at how hot he is sitting over there scratching his stomach. <laughs> Woo, he's hot. See how he never does chores? Mmm, I pay all the bills. I always discipline the kids, but I'm so happy with that. You kidding me? Go to your husband and in love say, Honey, today be the man that God wants you to be so that I can be the woman that God wants me to be. Because men, until you're the man that God wants to be, you to be, she can't be the wife that God wants her to be. Not in the fullest She's still cleaning up your mess. Now, certainly, ladies, those of you who have a lot of grace and are going to have maybe more of a difficult man than others, be patient and gracious and loving. But men, it, it takes two to tango here. Children, I looked upstairs immediately because all of our kids sit upstairs for some reason. I don't need to be down here in the splash zone. Children, here's some. Children, your job is to honor your parents. 
that has this life consequences and the next life consequences. That's very serious, children. Very serious. God gives children parents to keep children from making a mess of their lives. Oh, my mom's stupid. Maybe you're stupid. And I, I say that enough because really, you're, you're constantly fighting with mom and dad. Oh, she always wants me to clean my room. That's because there's rodents living under your bed. You want bubonic plague running through your, yard, through your house? Oh, she wants me to get an education. Yeah, what an evil beast. <laughs> Dad's always tripping about clean this up and mow the grass. That's because there's cars in your front yard and you don't even know it. The Bible says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Children, obey your parents at what? Your days might be long in the land. Now, children, that's no guarantee, but I can tell you this. Those who don't obey their parents and think they know more than their parents do, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot go home way early, and I've seen their parents crying, saying, I wish he was different. Why didn't he just listen? Children, there's a lesson to you. The point is that all of these, in every household code, we don't say, world, what do you have to offer me? We say, God's word, what should I be? And when we find it, we're that. We want to promote that in our church. Finally, finally. Oh, I want to read this quote. Let me read this quote. Because I got two things here. So back to three. Each of these exhortations, says Tim Keller, has a distinct shape. They're not identical tasks. They're not identical tasks. And yet each partner is called to sacrifice for the other in far-reaching ways. Whether we are husband or wife or child or parent, we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And what is, and sorry, and it says, and that is the single most important function of being a husband or a wife in marriage or a child or a parent in the family, to live for one another. Now, I have one last message to my singles who are here. Though this is a message or this point is speaking primarily to the Christian home and to Christian husbands and wives and children, Singles, this does not mean that there's no message to you. There is much benefit to being single. Paul exhorted the Corinthians to be single like he was, probably for the virtue of avoiding the inherent problems that come along when two sinners say, I do. Singles, see that as a benefit for your life. But singles do not have the inherent, also singles don't have the inherent worries that come along with being a spouse or a parent. They're free to serve God with all of their hearts and to come and to go as the Spirit leads them in their ministry. But as Tim Keller warns us, we should be neither overly elated by getting married nor overly disappointed by not being so because Christ is the only spouse that can truly fulfill us and God's family, the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us. Christian single, make us your family. Okay? This is what it means for us. It means that members and matters of gender and society in the home, we began turning from wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God. 
It means we destroy the negative stereotypes about men and women, and we all, men and women, husband and wife, parent and child, walk by the commands of Scripture, not the commands of men. Finally, I want to talk about reaching South Florida for Christ. We believe that every believer is responsible for telling others about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Our vision is to create within our church a desire for souls through reaffirming God's image on every man, woman, or child and their absolute need for the reconciliation to God. Every believer in this church has the responsibility to tell the good news about Jesus. And it doesn't matter if they look only like you or they're only people that you like or they're only people that you prefer. It doesn't matter if they have a, a, a turban on their head or, or whether they're homosexual or even transgender. It, it doesn't matter because that person, whether they're confused whether they've marred the image of God by, by surgical transformation, whether they don't reflect God's image perfectly in the, in the unity and diversity of male and female relationship, even if they don't do that, it means we still love and tell them about Jesus. That's what it means. This church might not, if you do that, this church might not look like it looks today. In a year or two, it might look completely different, full of people who don't look like what we think a good Christian looks like. But a bunch of different people from different walks of life who have said, God, I am in need of your grace and your mercy. And understand the repentance, the black velvet of their sin, and now see the shining diamond of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what we want in our church. Think about Acts chapter 10. You know the story. Acts chapter 10. Peter's up on his rooftop, and a vision comes to Peter of a sheet with unclean animals. And it says, take, kill, and eat, Peter. And Peter says, never. I've never eaten anything unclean or common. And the, the sheet comes down again three times, and Peter that was a weird dream, he says. That was strange. And he's, what could that have meant? And while he's standing there, here's a little. Three men are standing at the door, corresponding to the three times he was told to eat the unclean things. Peter says, yes. They said, there is a man who has sent us, a godly man, a God-fearer, a God-fearer, not a Jew, but he sends this to us. We don't know why. But we're here, we want you to come to him. So Peter follows the Spirit, the Spirit tells Peter to go, and Peter goes, and he enters the house into a Gentile, and while he's there, in the presence of a Gentile, he feels unclean. This is dirty. This is where sinners are. And he says to them, you know, it's unlawful for me to be here, right? You know, I shouldn't be here with you. Because you don't fit the model of a godly person. You're a Gentile. And I need to be with the people who are like me. He says that. The man says, fine, fine, whatever. But, but I, I was told that you have this. And Peter begins to tell him the gospel of Jesus Christ. Despite his prejudices against Gentiles. 
The Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon him in his household, Cornelius and his household, and they began speaking in tongues. And Peter looked at them, one another, the other Jews, and said, how can we deny that these two have received the Holy Spirit, are, are now saved and are now our brothers, if they've received the same Holy Spirit that we did? That's what I was saying yesterday amongst my Jamaican brothers and sisters. We're all under the same Holy Spirit. Praise God that he does not just save the people I like and the people I don't like and the people you like and the people you don't like and the people you think should be saved and the people you don't think you should, that should be saved. But he saves whom he pleases. The gospel goes to all nations. All nations. How is it that we can be standing with men and women we've never met before and say, you're my brother, whether the society that we live in tells us that they are or are not, Christians must live above the racial divide and see Jesus as their father and as their brother. That's what we want for our church. It means that the gospel then is greater than our own self-righteousness. It means that the gospel must be taken to all kinds of people from every nation and creed. It means that the gospel must correct false views about who Christ is and what true worship means. It means that God is already preparing. Think about this passage. God is already preparing Cornelius' heart. And God is already preparing people's hearts right now who you don't know to receive the gospel. All you have to do is preach it. It means that the heart of the gospel is that anyone who believes in Jesus, even though, even though Cornelius was a godly man, he paid his taxes he did everything he was supposed to do. He was very godly. The Bible says he was so godly, but he didn't have Jesus. And it doesn't matter how good your neighbor is. If your neighbor doesn't know Jesus, your neighbor's not saved. So as godly as Cornelius was, he still needed to hear the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And finally, it means there's a reward in evangelism. Salvation to the lost is the reward for the lost. And us, those who share the gospel, it is to our edification and growth as believers. The point of the message this morning is this. Church, we can't be happy with where we are. Not today and not in 10 years. We are always growing, growing and growing. Strengthening our lives as believers. Increasing the unity of the faith. Being better Christian homes and reaching more people for Jesus Christ. This vision is a lifelong vision as long as this church building stands. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for Christian ministry. Thank you for Christian ministry, for strong faith that needs to grow. Thank you for unity and for the need to increase in unity. Thank you for homes that are Christian and the need to be better this day and better tomorrow. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for the great privilege of sharing the world, the power of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel, the good news of salvation. Lord Jesus, let this vision be realized as we as a body Stand up and begin to walk, putting feet to our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.